I have to say I'm probably the only person my size who's ever chased a 250-pound wrestler through downtown L.A., and he was scared. It's car con carne. Let's eat in the car. It's car con carne. And now here's the star of our show, James Van Ostel. It is car con carne, the world's only food podcast recorded in a car. I'm James Van Ostel, and sitting shotgun this week, Sandy King Carpenter. Of, of movie fame, of John Carpenter studio fame, of graphic <laughs> novel fame, asylum fame, we're sitting right outside an iconic Chicago landmark, Chess Studios, twenty one twenty South Michigan Avenue. It's awesome. It is so awesome, and it's awesome that you agreed to jump in a stranger's car for this. Yeah, I'll probably wind up murdered on a side street, but that's fine. Well, I enjoyed the email exchange. Uh, you said, you know, if I do end up buried in a ditch, my publicist will avenge me. And my husband will kill you. And I thought, I get it. And also, how cool. John, John Carpenter would put a hit out on me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now he's tough. He's <laughs> oh, tough, and, he, and he'll do it creatively. I, you know, I, I don't doubt that for a second. Uh, so for lunch today, we're having a lunch car con carne. I decided to do something thematic. Based on your work on the graphic novel Asylum, I got us hot dogs from a place called Devil Dogs. Ah. Seemed appropriate, right? Good. Yeah. Uh, and I got you a plain hot dog. Good. Now, you're in Chicago. I realize it's sacrilegious. I'm not getting it with everything. Uh, but it's in the interest of not throwing up in your car. I, well, I appreciate that. So let's talk about asylum real quick before we jump into food. I'm not a religious guy, but there's, oh, there's always been something about that heaven versus hell conflict that I think makes for spectacular storytelling. Well, I think, you know... Whether or not you're a religious person, everybody has an interest in right and wrong, good and evil. Um, what are the angels inside us? Uh, what are the things that tempt us? And so what I try and do in asylum is address those kinds of things. And we go into a lot of theology that even precedes Judeo-Christian to address our demons. And uh, I like using the Jesuit priest to go a little deeper than, uh, you know, Catholicism and that kind of stuff. And it it's dark. It's, there's sexuality in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, if you pick up the graphic novel, I mean, there's sexuality and drugs, I think, on page one, right out of the gate. Pretty much, and I realize every time there's a comic convention that kids have a radar for the only tits in the book. Um, <laughs> they, they hone in on that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I try not to make that gratuitous, but it is the it is the one temptation that the detective has that he mm. winds up ruining later. Um, I think it, it. We touch on it. Just to say that, I mean, I had a grandfather who said he could resist anything but temptation. It applied to food, it applied to women, it applied to everything. <laughs> um, you know, we all have things that lead us astray. So, um, while the sexuality is not a gigantic part that goes on as a theme, it's one of the things. 
um, of the classic sins. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it dips in there. It would be kind of silly to leave it out. Uh, totally agreed. The artwork is stunning. Leonardo Manco is, is brilliant. Uh, it took a long time to find the guy who could draw cinematically, who could be evocative for carpenter fans of cinema. Mm -hmm. And um, Tim Bradstreet is the one who turned us on to Leo Manco. And he's legendary in his own right. Absolutely. Yeah, he did the cover for uh, Halloween Nights for us. Which, uh, I'm going to ask you to sign that before you leave the car, if that's okay. Sure. All right, good. Um, Asylum was intended to be a television show. What's great about the comic, the graphic novel, the special effects budget's through the roof. You can do whatever you want. Well, that's the fun of comics. Um, in comics, we can do lots of things that uh, there, there's nobody saying, oh, God, you know, not this week. You, you, we can't afford that. Um, when we were in discussions to do it as a series, first, uh, it was too dark. Uh, then it was, oh, can't you make this in a snowy little town? And really, that was a euphemism for can't you shoot at non-union in North Carolina? <laughs> um, and you know all that jargon by this point. Oh, yeah. I'm old. I've been around. And um, and one day in a meeting, uh, one of the, the development executive's assistants said, well, it's not like it's a graphic novel or anything. When I said, you know, L.A. is a character. It's got to mm -hmm. look like this. And I looked at him and I said, actually, it is. And um, I was kicked under the table by Thomas Ian Griffith, who was the six-foot-five vampire in Vampires. You know, so it's a mm -hmm. large kick. Um, an agent, a manager, walked out and went, what was that about? And I said, I can't take it anymore. You know, it's a great story. Let's do it the right way. It should be a comic book. And uh, went home. John said, so how'd it go? And I said, we're doing a comic book. And he was full on board? I mean, his name's, oh, yeah. on, his name's on the title is John Carpenter. Well, yeah, so. because, well, because he and Thomas and I had created the story and created the characters and created the, all the arcs. So, um, yeah, he and Thomas were on board. Um, and we spent two years learning about comics because you, just because you read them doesn't mean you can make them. I, I would imagine the writing process, I mean, even though it's kind of like storyboarding, I'm guessing, I'm sure there are nuances that are very different from putting together a film. Or oh, it's a, it's a whole different, you know, it's storytelling. We, we all tell stories, but it is a much different art form. We were incredibly, uh, Bruce Jones was incredibly gracious in uh, writing for us at the beginning and in teaching me a lot because it is different from script writing. Um, there's page turns. There's different ways of getting your suspense. Um, it's a great discipline. You have to say a lot with very few words. Uh, I'll write and think I've just really kicked it and go back through and go, eh, yeah, that was special. And I have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite to get any kind of suspense, any kind of horror in 25 words or less. And, oh, my God, horror comics, there's such a need for them. I, I've, I've been going back. There's an app called Hoopla, which lets you tap into your local library and borrow digital books. And they have all the creepy and eerie archives on them now. Uh -huh. And I've been going back, and I realize I do have a lust for that kind of content. Like, I feel like there's not enough of it. And I, Asylum fills that void. It, it really scratches the itch, so to speak. I'm using a lot of metaphors. Well, it's it's great. We hope to. Uh, 
you know, it's a great challenge. I, I don't want to let anybody down. We, we want, I want a book. When we, when we went to create this, people have been asking John for years to put his name on horror books, largely because they weren't good enough to sell on their own. And so he didn't. And I felt like by creating this in-house and by holding it to the standards we hold our movies to, I want everybody, whether they pay 10 bucks to get into a movie or pay 4 bucks for a comic, to feel like they got something special. And I wanted to win over the comic book fans who really look at movie people askance, like we're just coming into rape and pillage. Yeah, there, the there's industry. a level of suspicion, an arched eyebrow. Huge. Uh -huh. Huge. And I wanted them to want to collect our book and have it in the long box under their bed. That's awesome. Oh, there, thank goodness, in the 21st century, the long boxes aren't under the bed anymore. No. <laughs> they're, they're in the living rooms. <laughs> they they're on, they're on public display. But, you know, whenever we shot on location, our kids and John would go seek out the local comic shop. And, you know, Silver Snail up in Toronto and, you know, all the, the, the other main comic shops around the world. And, you know, I still want somebody to see that, my comic, and have it be that shiny object they can't resist. On a related note, when you and John walk into a comic shop, does the comic owner just piss his or herself when he sees you two? Like, oh my God, what? <laughs> uh, they don't care about me so much, but they do go nuts over him. <laughs> I'm sure you're selling yourself short, but okay. You know the old cliche, never work with family. You and John do everything together. I mean, you work on film, you work on Asylum. Is it, does it ever reach a level of awkwardness, or do you have an understanding at this point that you kind of work symbiotically? Uh, both. <laughs> um, he generally wants to divorce me right around the pre-dubs. <laughs> um, you know, by the last Emotions week are a little shooting, high at that point. And um, generally, by the time we deliver the film, I've been forgiven. Um, you know, I think he... So there's a cycle. There's an arc, just like any good story. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling I annoy him more than he annoys me. Um, the thing is, there's no competition. I don't try to be him. Um, and what I like doing, uh, I like putting the crossword puzzle together that's producing. I like problem solving. I like being the facilitator. Um, I work for him and the crew. So there's really not a conflict of interest there. And he trusts me. I'd so, imagine more than anyone. So it works out really well. And when the kids were growing up and stuff, that made it so that our family wasn't divided. I, you know, I started out, I was working other films and other projects, and that was hard because I was torn between, you know, family and work. Sure. It made it a lot easier to have the kids with us, you know, in my motorhome doing their work, homework. Makes perfect sense. Are you hungry? Ready for your hot dog? I'm fine. Well, let's eat. I got French fries, which may be cold at this point. You like soggy fries? Yeah. Uh, really? I like anything. I've got napkins, too. Okay. And this feels like a plain hot dog. Okay. Yeah, they're soggy. Okay, this has the gravity of a Chicago dog. Now, oh, well, see, look at that. It's a work of art. You've got the, the peppers, the chopped onions. That is really disgusting. Tomatoes. Disgusting! <laughs> Says the woman who works in horror. <laughs> Says the woman who worked on The Incredible Melting Man. Yeah, that was disgusting, too. I remember as a kid 
maybe it was a trailer or a movie poster, and I remember begging my parents to take me to the Incredible Melting Man. It never happened <laughs> as a kid. There were, there were three units working on that. And at one point, one of the units accidentally lost the wrong ear, you know, because he was falling <laughs> apart as he was running through the forest or whatever the hell we had him running through. <laughs> Everybody stopped short and went, you took off his wrong ear? Well, now what do we do? <laughs> Have some napkins. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty funny. And because we're in the Chicago area, the name John Hughes has such gravity mm-hmm. because he shot everything here. It's such a big name. What was it like working with Hughes? It was interesting. It was his first movie, 16 Candles. And... It's the only time I worked on something, because I worked independent, I worked studio, I worked, mm-hmm. I did everything, where, that I ever experienced where, you know, that I was, I was called in by Universal as kind of a Trojan horse. Um, I looked younger than I was. They didn't trust him as a director. Hmm. You know, he, he... I love hearing that, hearing that, knowing how that story ended. He, yeah. He was a, a writer, and they'd surround him with some old guard studio guys. And um, they sent me in saying, listen, uh, they think he's messing around with the kids during the rehearsals, meaning, meaning playing too much, not anything else. And... Um, you know, they think that because you're young and stuff, you can influence him. And I said, look, I work for the director. I'm responsible to you guys. You know how this is going to go. You know, I'm I'm not, you know, going to undermine him. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but you're going to make sure the work gets done. I said, okay, fine. So I flew out. And what I saw was that there was a producer and a first AD... And a, and a DP around him that really didn't care if the movie got done because as long as they shot the number of pages they all came out in the clear and they could blame everything on him that's a gross way of doing things yeah it was really disgusting so the camera operator who later wound up being a DP for us Gary Kibbe and I were you know, I finally went to him and said listen we're, we're going to have to help this guy out because he hadn't done anything visual before and I saw when we were scouting that he wasn't quite sure how to get words into pictures. That's interesting. And I came from animation. And I said, listen, tell me, tell me what you want to see. You've got to figure out the frame. I'll help you. I'll draw storyboards for you. I'll do anything. So you were the angel on his shoulder. And he had a great editor, Edward Shilka, whose sons later wound up editing for us. And so three of us really kind of put it on the line to try and help him through, but without telling him because we didn't want him to lose confidence. And this is an amazing story. I, I've never heard that. Like, because John Hughes is held in such reverence and as a guy who could do no wrong. Hearing about him in the shaky beginning stages, I, I find utterly fascinating. He was vulnerable, but. Only because anybody first starting... Look, me first starting in comics. 
if it weren't for a lot of great people in comics giving me advice, the Jimmy Palmiotis and Steve Niles and people like that, I'd be a dead duck. Everybody needs a hand when they start in a new aspect of the arts. And Palmiotti, just a quick side note, there's a guy who figured out how to be self-sufficient and independent and do it on his own terms. I mean, great model for that. No, and one of the most giving guys in the comic business. I mean, he has been so kind to me and so kind to everybody. Steve Niles is another person. Very kind, very giving. I found the comics community at every turn has has been very gracious to me. I'm sure it's very different from Hollywood. In Hollywood, there's really kind people, too. Like, for instance, yes, we all help John Hughes. But you should. When you see somebody coming in who's about to get his back stabbed... Yeah. No, that's not cool. And, you know, it wasn't that he was stupid. It was that he hadn't been there before. He was just green. Yeah, he was just new to directing. He was a good writer. He was good with the kids. There was a lot he knew. But, you know, if you see him walking into a buzzsaw, and you know it... Grab him by the collar. Pull him back. Yeah, you just kind of go, hey, 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 hey. Maybe you might want to consider this. Let's jump around a little bit. Tell me about your Rumblefish experience. Oh, Rumblefish. Uh, Well, we did Rumblefish and The Outsiders... Uh, back to back they started shooting I wasn't on the original crew of Outsiders I came in for I was hired on Rumblefish did the rehearsals for Rumblefish then we did the reshoots for Outsiders and then we shot Rumblefish and then we did reshoots on both (laughs) so we were doing everything in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 115 degree heat in the summer feels great (laughs) yeah that was grim saw my first tornadoes close up Oh, my gosh. The only time I've been to Tulsa, it, it struck me how there are tornado shelters everywhere. Like, every public building has... That's just an omnipresent threat in Oklahoma. That, yeah. That's their reality. I mean, that's when you go... You know, Toto, we're really not in Kansas uh-huh. anymore. I mean, as a California kid, you looked up, saw the sky go green, and went, whoa. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is not where I should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was great. Uh, we worked hellacious hours. Uh, I averaged 108 hours a week. And, um, you know, what can I say? Working with Francis Coppola um, and, you know, great crews doing creative stuff. You know, Rumblefish was a black and white film. And we were doing all the old tricks from the, the silver nitrate days to try and get that depth. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Dean Tavalaris. Uh, was painting shadows on the walls and things like that to get, you know, extra things in the, the, the walls of the billiards hall and on the outsides of the white uh, house. One of my favorite all-time movie soundtrack songs is from Rumblefish. Ah, uh, with Stuart Copeland. Don't box me in. Yeah, and he was, he was uh, on the top of the insert car drumming as we were setting rhythms. Oh, get out. No, he was. <laughs> He That's was. a memory. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and all the fight scene was choreographed by a ballet dancer at the same time as a stunt coordinator. That's a lot of, from the painting the shadows to the ballet choreography, that's a lot of intricacy I, I think we as moviegoers can't even imagine happens. Well, you're not supposed to be able to. You're just supposed to have the feeling. I mean, that's that's the whole thing behind movie magic. 
You know, we're supposed to create a world you immerse yourself in and don't see those details. I want to talk about They Live. And it's funny, as we're talking about the movies you've worked on, and certainly the movies your husband did, directed, I realize that your family has been instrumental in my... You've essentially reared me uh, from my childhood through your movies. <laughs> That's frightening. <laughs> a little bit, if not true. Uh, they Live. Working on that movie, what was it like working with Roddy Piper, who at the point at that point was at the peak of his Roddy Piperness? Roddy was like having a very big caged cat. Um, I adored Roddy Piper. Uh, Roddy Roddy was a, a true love of our lives. Um, we were very close to him. <clears throat> He's very unpredictable. Like I said it's like it's like working with Siegfried and Roy's tigers. <laughs> um, never a hundred percent sure what you were going to get, and um, you treat him right. You deal with him with respect. You get the pussy cat. You could also get your face torn off, you know, on the wrong kind of day. Um, he he loved to taunt me. We had taken forty pounds off him to turn him into a movie star instead of a wrestler. An unfed wrestler is not a happy man. I can't imagine. And um, I couldn't figure out, because I'd be looking at him daily, he's going, why is he looking puffy? Why is he looking heavier? And I'd find out that he had the Teamsters bringing him in beers <laughs> and uh, donuts in his trailer. And I got him all stripped out, and then he came down one night, and we were shooting downtown L.A., Crips territory, really rough area, and he decided to taunt me by eating a jelly donut across from me. And I have to say I'm probably the only person my size who's ever chased a 250-pound wrestler through downtown L.A., and he was scared. That's amazing. <laughs> he knew better than to mess with you. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Man who stared down Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, <laughs> get Sandy King Carpenter in there, it's trouble. I said, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you know? Tell me about when you first met John Carpenter. Did, did you know? <laughs> that was funny. Um, I met him for the movie Starman. And... Um, I had I had done something uncharacteristic for me, which was I wrote a letter applying for the position of script supervisor, which I never did. You know, generally people called me. Generally word of mouth job. people yeah. And um I had had been dating somebody who had done Christine while I was doing Sixteen Candles and said, you know, you'd really you should really work with Carpenter, you guys would really get along. He later said much to his chagrin. And um, so friends of mine were going on Starman. It's the rigging crew and stuff. And I thought, I, don't, I got drunk one night and I wrote this letter saying why I, just like the other 180 other out-of-work script supervisors, should, you know, be his script supervisor. I don't know what I wrote. It must have been funny, but apparently the letter made him call to interview me and um, I kept I kept having the uh, 
uh, it turned out the production secretary was somebody who didn't like me for some reason. So I had five different interviews set up with him that kept getting canceled. And the day of the final interview, I, I used to have a horse, and I was going to go horseback riding, and they called and said, come in now. And I was just like, well, I'm not even going to change clothes for this because it's just going to get canceled. Right. So I went in in my riding clothes and stuff. And um, he said later he hired me because I had a good ass. Um, <laughs> my guess is it was probably true. Uh, but, but at any rate, it was the kind of... it was complete sets of I, so I always interviewed back because you're stuck with these people for like six months of your life yeah and I asked him well, why don't you have anybody sorry about that uh, regular that you work with and he hemmed and hawed around I said well it's not like I want to be your best friend I just need to get inside your mind and work with you I need to know where you're going and so it, it got funnier and funnier as we were working together. They said, why don't you want to be my friend? I said, I didn't say I want, didn't want to be your friend. I said, I don't need to be your best friend. And so this became a running deal going on where he go, why don't you want to be friends with me? And who are these people that visit you on the set? Because, you know, guys on the lot, grips and stuff that were my friends from mm -hmm. other shows would come that were like covered in tattoos. So, so wait, was that a seed of jealousy starting there? No, I think he just thought I was weird. <laughs> he couldn't quite figure it all out. So the guy who gave us the thing thought you were weird. Apparently. Okay. And um, and thought I didn't want to be his friend. Um, it, and so that's how true love starts. Kind of dancing around one another and. <laughs> Apparently, but uh, it just it just kind of grew from there. Um, By the way, this is part of the verite of doing a podcast in a car. The horns. The... Yeah, but you know, they, they got the message. They uh -huh. stopped. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> so, no, you know, it just it just grew from, uh, I guess you hang out together long enough. <laughs> now, he's touring behind his music. Are you, are you going to pop in for some of those dates? I I may, but I really think that, you know, he, he's got the, the boys with him. Um our godson and our and uh, and our son Cody and um, I think there's nothing greater than a father and his and his kids going out and playing rock and roll. Our our godson grew up with us, and um, both boys grew up surrounded with music. John always had a recording studio downstairs, and um, they played on Lost Themes and they played on Lost Themes. Too. They, they co-composed. And I really think they should have that experience for them. This one's for the boys. Yeah, I think so. I get it. So there, there may be a couple of dates where I, I fly in. Um, but I think, you know, let them go have their, their gig. All right, so looking ahead with you, what's next for the studio? What's next for Asylum? Chart out 2016 for us. Oh, it's going to be nuts. We've got... Um, Right now, four uh, television shows that are at the studios, but not yet at the networks, which means you're like Schrodinger's cat. You're neither alive nor dead. And um, But the same thing applies when you're not yet greenlit at the network. You know, um, you can sit there and say you have a TV series all you want, but, you know, it's not there yet. Well, does Netflix, does do the streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, et cetera, do they provide more opportunity for type of content you're involved with? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
definitely they broaden they broaden what you can do and the fact that they buy whole series instead of just going the, the piecemeal pilot and that kind of stuff I think makes it from a producing standpoint I think it's it's better because you can amortize uh, your costs instead of front loading everything and I'm going to interrupt you like I said we're in front of Chess Studios a big white continental pulled up behind us as we're sitting here and a guy is walking into the studio who I feel like we should know I know but I don't know who it is I almost want to roll down the window but I, I know better alright sorry so yeah. you're talking about <laughs> um and so we've got the four television shows, and we've got two features out, and we've uh, and that which what that means is that, you know, I've broken down the budgets, the scheduling, and stuff, so they're out for financing, and um, then we're launching, besides the horror, the uh, annual horror uh, anthology, we're going to start up a. Um, sci-fi fantastic Uh, so we've got right now Vortex is being written uh, which there's already a song for that yeah I stole it Um, (laughs) but it it works on on, uh, because there's wormholes and stuff in in the one story that uh, I wrote with a guy named Mike Sizemore out of England and he's continuing to write the uh, comic and uh, along with a, a great illustrator from England, uh, David Kennedy, and uh, another one that James Ninus, who wrote one of the Halloween Night stories, is doing called Vault. So I think we can get a pretty good uh, compendium of sci-fi stories. Sounds great. Yeah, so we got those going. Asylum's going to go into a third arc. You're busy. Yeah, real busy. You know what your studio needs? A podcast. I don't think we have time, <laughs> and I don't think we'd be good at it. <laughs> the beauty, the beautiful thing about podcasting is the rawness, the sometimes amateur nature of it. I think it's part of the appeal. Well, it's fun to do, I and mean, I like to appear on other people's podcasts. Okay, I get it. The invitee as opposed to the inviter. Yeah. Got it. Uh, well, I hope you had fun. Please finish your hot dog. I, I will. Uh, was this okay? It's fun. All right. Well, thank you for joining me in the car. Thank you. All right. It's Carcon Carne. If you want to hear more, you can go to carconcarne.com. We're also on Twitter at Carcon Carne. Thanks for listening.